1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, starting at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word. Let me add my welcome. Uh, my name's Phil. I'm one of the ministers on the staff here. If you're here for the first time, it's quite a passage, isn't it? Uh, we'll work our way through it together. Um, we're committed to looking at the difficult bits of God's Word, because quite often we find they're the bits that um, have the most to teach us, because uh, they're the bits that surprise us, where God says stuff we wouldn't have worked out for ourselves. So we're gonna, we've sung for God's help, but let's, uh, let's just pray again as we, as we tuck into this passage together. Our Father God, uh, we like to judge you. We like to pick and choose which bits of the Bible we will accept. Please would you give us the humility to step down from the throne and to listen to you, to learn from you. Father, please would you help us to hear difficult words and not to have hard, stubborn hearts. For we long to be a people who are beautiful in your sight and beautiful to the world around. Amen. I'm not sure if you noticed this as a kid, um, if you're even vaguely aware, you will have done, that there's a simple rule. You can work out how exasperated your parents are by the sheer number of questions they ask when you've done something wrong. So it's, why did you do that? Just one question. You made a mistake. But it does start to tip towards, why did you do that? Did I really bring you up to behave like this? Is this how you behave when you're with other people? Is that how you behave when you're at school? Don't you ever learn anything? Okay, we are in trouble at this point. Paul asks 10 questions in nine verses. He has absolutely lost it with the Corinthians. And that seems a bit odd. Because chapter 5 was about a perverted sex scandal and chapter 6 is just about a few legal disputes. So why on earth does he absolutely blow his top here? Actually, it's a very serious issue indeed because what Paul recognizes is that a church that is uh, taking each other to court is a church that is absolutely driven by the desire, the impulse, the overpowering urge that I must win. 
that I will not lose financially to you because it matters to me. That I won't lose face to you because my, my reputation is important. In other words, it is a church for whom the driving principle of life is not Jesus Christ. Who Jesus is and what he's done for them is not the thing that drives their behavior. Instead, it's their own selfish desire, and in particular their desire to win and not to lose out financially. And so Paul is very, very clear. Look, you are absolutely lost if this is what defines you as a bunch of people. That there are disputes isn't actually a problem in Paul's eyes, as we'll see. Look, you chuck a bunch of sinners together and say, behave like family, and there are going to be some frictions. If you haven't noticed that already, give it a few weeks. Um, It'll happen. The problem, though, is what they do when the disputes arise. Let's have a look. Uh, Firstly, you've got an outline um, if you want to take notes or see where we're going. Verses 1 to 6, going to court is out of order. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers But instead, one brother goes to law against another brother, and this in front of unbelievers. Now, before we get into the detail of the verses, it is very, very important to notice at the start that he's dealing with a criminal dispute, not a civil matter. Uh, I'm not just excited about that because I'm an ex-lawyer. It really matters. In Romans 13, Paul says, submit to civil authorities. He says, actually, Christians ought to be the best citizens in any society because God commands us, to obey the civil rulers. And in particular, he talks about the magistrates, the, the, the judges who decide criminal matters. And he says they are a God's servant for your good. If there's a crime, you go to the police. This is not a crime that's being dealt with. So at the most sharpest end, if a, if a case of child abuse was revealed amongst a family at church, the church does not hush it up and deal with it in-house, because 1 Corinthians 6 tells us we shouldn't go outside of the church to law. No, 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 not at all. If we're going to obey the Bible, which we must, then we must go to the police. We must deal with it properly, because God's word commands us to obey the earthly authorities in matters of criminal law. Absolutely clear. This is very different. This is a civil dispute, a fight between a couple of people at church. Let's work through it and, uh, and see what, is, uh, what has happened and why Paul is so unhappy before we step back and try and discern what principles there are for you and me um, as we decide whether to sue the person next to us for infringing on our personal space in these rather tight chairs. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Disputes arise. It could be that uh, one person in church rents a flat from somebody else and for some reason isn't paying rent. Uh, Maybe two people are in church or in business together and things have gone wrong. One thinks one thing was agreed, another says another was agreed. It may be that there's a couple at church who want to get divorced. It may be someone's borrowed money and not repaid it. It it may be that uh, someone bought a car off somebody else and it uh, deposited its exhaust all over the road on the way home. Who knows what the dispute is? And in fact, all of those issues have arisen pretty much here 
but it's what we do when the dispute arises. What they should do is work it out amongst themselves. We looked at Matthew 18 last week when we were thinking through um, 1 Corinthians 5 and matters of church discipline. And in Matthew 18, it says, look, if there's a problem between two people in church, you deal with it one-on-one. One one. If you can't deal with it, then the one who thinks that they've been wronged, bring somebody else from church along, but keep it private. If that doesn't resolve it, then you get the church leadership involved. But you don't lawyer up and run off and start issuing claims against each other. Why? Well, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints, that's just uh, the Bible's word for Christians, will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? It's an extraordinary line of argument he makes here. Now to judge in the Bible's thinking is much more than just to to decide this dispute. To judge means to to rule wisely, to govern well. So it's to to lead, to to make decisions, to to set a course. It's, It's not just wait for things to go wrong. So it's a much broader term, and it's a term that has much more to do with ruling and governing than just uh, judging a dispute. And Paul says, look, when Jesus returns, Christians, his people will be uh, given the task of ruling over the whole of the, the universe. You will deal with enormously important matters to do with the, the way that the new creation fits together and runs and works. You'll even, he says, verse 3, you'll judge the eternal fate of angels, So please don't tell me that you can't find somebody in church. You can sort out whether Billy should pay Johnny the rent or whether he should withhold it because Johnny hasn't sorted the hot water. Seriously, you're going to judge the eternal fate of angels and you're telling me, oh, it's just beyond us to sort this one out. Get a grip, sort it out. Now don't worry, Uh, it's quite a big responsibility. It won't be like the refereeing at the Rugby World Cup. Jesus will ensure we don't make mistakes. There'll, There'll be no problems on that. That's not the issue. Don't worry about the weight of responsibility. The big point, the point he wants us to get is that we will have awesome, awesome responsibilities in the new creation. Dealing with enormously important matters. The governance of the universe. So seriously, we ought to be able to sort out disputes about something as trivial as money without running off to the courts. Verses 4 to 5 are are very sarcastic, I think. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? The Corinthians are so proud of their wisdom. And he says, you keep telling me you're such a wise church and there's nobody wise enough to sort this out. I mean, seriously, find somebody at church you can't trust to do any other job because this really doesn't matter and get them to do it. You know, find somebody who you couldn't put on a rotor. The sort of person who has to have Velcro shoes because they can't tie their own shoelaces. Yet just, they don't need to be able to do anything. This really, this matters so little, I can't even imagine. Just doesn't matter. Do you sense his exasperation? (laughs) We'll see why he's so exasperated in a minute. Instead, verse 6, one brother goes to law against another brother, literally. And this in front of unbelievers. You and I need to work things out amongst ourselves. The Bible gives us everything we need, even in the complexities of modern life, to work out life and to resolve disputes. If you get into a problem with somebody else in church, and that will happen from time to time, 
then we allow the principles of the Bible, we submit ourselves to that, and we work it out amongst ourselves. That's how we do it. The interesting question, though, is why are they doing this? What is driving them to to make such a ridiculous mistake? As ever, of course, with the Corinthians, they're living by the wisdom of this world. They've been shaped, molded by this world, the thinking of Corinth. That's what you do in Corinth when you have an argument with somebody. You take them to court. There's no need to get into the cultural reasons of what the legal system in Corinth was like. But that was just what you do in Corinth. You go to court if you've got an argument. He's saying you don't live just like that. But I think there's one thing in particular that means that they don't realize that this is stupid. I think that they're, from what we can read, they've bought into something that most of us have also bought into. It's an issue which isn't just a Corinthian issue, it's a you and me in London issue. And that's the, the technical term is the sacred secular divide. Sacred secular divide. It's this view that uh, Jesus and the Bible is really, really useful if you want a relationship with God, forgiveness for sins, bored with what to do with your Sundays, fabulous. When you get out into the world on Monday and you've got to decide how to conduct business, how to invest money, what to do with a relationship, well, he doesn't really have anything relevant to say. And to be honest, you'd be naive and foolish if you, you know, allowed the Bible to determine how you invest your money or, or how you conduct your business or how you deal with disputes. I mean, that would be just ridiculously naive and silly. I mean, the Bible's a spiritual book for spiritual things. Except that God's the God who created the physical world. And he's the God of Monday to Sunday, not just Sunday. I don't think it's a thought through position for us. But the truth is that I fear that many of us end up living compartmentalized lives. Which I mean that come Sunday evening we really fit in well at church. Our language, our attitudes, our friendship group. We fit in here. It feels like home. But then come Monday in the office or come Saturday night in the bar, we fit in perfectly there. Our language, our behavior, our standards of treating one another fit in perfectly in that world too. It's like a, we flip a switch and we just go from one sort of person to another sort of person depending on where we are. In here, we sing as if Jesus is glorious and He's all satisfying and he gives me everything I need. Out there, I grumble about my pay and talk about getting on the property ladder in exactly the same way as my friends who don't have a hope in Christ. I live a compartmentalized life, sacred, secular. Jesus sorts the sacred stuff, the forgiveness of sins, secular stuff, how I deal with the realities of nitty-gritty of life. He has nothing to say to that. And that's what's going on in Corinth. You see, it's a non-spiritual issue, this dispute about money. So ignore the Bible, go to court. That's what they're doing. But that's wrong. God is the God of all of life. And God wants us to offer our lives, our physical bodies, it says in Romans 12, as living sacrifices. He wants your Monday to Saturday, not just your Sunday. So they've been going to court and it's out of order. Um, and Paul continues the arguments in verses 7 to 8. And he effectively says, whoever wins when you go to court, you lose. But it starts really at verse 6. And I think verse 6 holds the key to verse 7 to 8. Instead, one brother goes to law against another. 
and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact you have lawsuits means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Whoever wins, everyone loses. That's the second thing he teaches. Whoever wins, everyone loses. In Dickens' famous um, book on, on the law, really, Bleak House, it's, a, it's quite a long read. Um, but if you ever get through it, the, at the centre of it is a court case between Jarndyce and Jarndyce, uh, two wards. And at the end of the book, uh, this fabulous amount of money, this enormous inheritance that has been the, the subject of a protracted legal trial, at the end of the, um, the book, when the case is finally decided, the judge realizes there's not a penny left. It's all been sucked out by the lawyers over years and years of wrangling and disputes. Everything's gone. Everyone loses. And the person who wins doesn't win either. But that's not the point here. He's not just, he's not just being cynical. Um, I worked in litigation for a number of years, and even after the lawyers' fees had gone out, and even after all the appeals had been done, sometimes one side won big time, and one side lost. So that can't be Paul's point. He's not just saying, you know, in law, it never works. He's making a different point. His point has nothing to do with the outcome of trials or the costs of litigation. His point is that the very existence of a lawsuit between brothers and sisters in Christ is a defeat because, verse 6, it's not just the judge who hears the case. It's all of Corinth who hear, look at that, the Christians, yet again, taking each other to court. What a joke they are. And so everybody loses because whatever happens about the money, in this case, the reputation of Christ is ruined. The reputation of the gospel goes down the toilet because they look on and they say, well, for all the big talk, they resolve their disputes the same way as everybody else. For all the big talk of Jesus gives the power for change and he enables us to to forgive, well, there's no reality to it. It's all just talk, hot air and nonsense. So whoever wins the case, if there is a lawsuit between Christians, the devil's the only one who wins, everybody loses. And the watching world just concludes, it's just a sham, hypocritical, empty nonsense. Why would I give any time to Jesus? There's no power in it at all. Now, I'm not aware of anybody at CCM in the history of the church having sued anybody else. I might be wrong, but I don't think so. I don't think anybody here has yet sued. Please don't be the first. But um, I think that that's just because our culture is different. We're not Corinth in the first century. We're London in the 21st century. Most of us couldn't afford to go to sue somebody if we wanted to. We're trying to save up a deposit. But the, the point is... They're not meant to go to court because they are meant to be a family. Do you see the, the repeated references about a brother against a brother or brother against another, verse 6. Verse 8, you do this to your brothers. You're meant to be a family. God's work is to reconcile and to reunite and to bring us together, to turn enemies into, into brothers and sisters. That's what God's work is here. And so we fail... Even if we don't go to court, if, when disputes arise, which they will, we don't resolve them. It's not enough not to go to court. It's not enough not to punch people in the face. I've seen it happen on the steps of a previous church I was working at. Um, That's a story I'll tell you afterwards if you really want to know. Um, It's not enough not to do that. 
we are to resolve disputes. If, when a relationship breaks up, we split into cliques depending on who supports who, and they become hardened little factions, and we just don't talk to each other. If, after a holiday, when something happened and things fell out with a little group of friends, it just becomes, well, wherever they're sitting in church, I'm always going to be sitting somewhere else. We are being as stupid and as wicked as the Corinthians. The issue isn't that they went to court so much. The issue is they didn't resolve the dispute themselves. Their version of not resolving it is going to court. Our version is more passive-aggressive, usually. Or it's just cliques, factions. Or, well, if you're going to be friends with them, you really can't be friends with me. That is not how it works in the family of God. That's not how it should work in here. When that happens, there is only one winner. And it's neither of the two groups. It's Satan. So please don't do that. There's, um, you probably know uh, in the traditional Anglican church service, when you have communion, they have a thing called the peace, which is where everybody sort of grins like they're on soft drugs and shakes hands with everybody else in church. And, <laughs> you know the thing. Um, the point of it is actually very serious. The point of the peace is you are about to stand before Almighty God and eat the death of Jesus Christ and drink his blood in the bread and the wine. And as you do so, you will be declaring by your physical act, I am united with Christ and I am united with the people here. There is one cup, we are united in Christ. One death saves us all. And to do so while in a dispute in church is wicked hypocrisy. But the the drafters of the Anglican service, um, Thomas Cranmer, recognized that we're idiots and we're wicked and we hurt each other. And so he didn't want us going to communion with disputes. So every communion service, there is the opportunity for the peace if you go through the full service. Because it's such a serious matter that you've got to give people the opportunity to go and say, look, we need to sort this out afterwards. There's not time now, but let's sort this out afterwards before they actually share communion. It really matters. Now, Paul starts in the set from seven, verse 7 onwards, really, to, to get into um, how to sort things out, I think, um, and to teach us positively about what to do. But his argument in the second half of verse 7 makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Why on earth would you take that advice? Who here would like to be wronged or cheated? You have option A and option B. Option A, be wronged and cheated. Option B, don't be wronged and don't be cheated. Who's choosing option A? Exactly. It just makes no sense. How on earth is it better to be defrauded, to lose money, when if you just took someone to court, you get the money back? How is it better to lose face and... And for people to think you were in the wrong, when all you have to do is take them to court and you'd be proved right. It only makes sense when you stop applying the wisdom of this world and you apply the wisdom of the cross, as Paul's been teaching throughout 1 Corinthians. How did Jesus conquer death? Well, by, oh yes, by not fighting back. How did he defeat the powers of evil? By being defeated by them by allowing himself to be falsely accused, unjustly convicted and brutally executed. His cosmic victory came about by totally refusing to stand for his rights, totally refusing to fight back 
and instead allowing himself to be killed. And that is how his great cosmic victory came. And it's only when you understand that logic that you realize Paul can be serious about what he's saying, that it's better to be defrauded here. You see, it sounds so foolish what Jesus did until you realize, oh yeah, three days later he rose again. (laughs) And the Corinthians are working out what's going to win. What is the wisest way to behave? But the problem is they factored in only this little 80 years here. They're brilliant at how to win in this 80 years. But Jesus rose again. This 80 years is just a pinprick in the whole expanse of the eternity that is to come. And Paul's point in 1 Corinthians again and again has been, don't be wise in a way which only works for this life. Be wise in a way which works for eternity. The cross of Jesus Christ looks foolish when you look only at this life. But then he rose from the dead. There is another life and an eternity to come. So who cares if you're defrauded in this life, if you stood firm with Christ? And it's to the future, really, that he turns now. Now, verses 9 to 11, as they were read, I'm sure they made us wince. And they also just seem to come out of nowhere. So where did they, suddenly, talking about all sorts of things, which we'd rather he didn't talk about in church. And how does this, actually, he's concluding both chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. And we'll see why. Um, verses 9 to 11. And I think his point, really, is behave like who you are, not who you were. Behave like who you are and not who you were. Do you not know that the wicked, and that word wicked is exactly the same word as the word do wrong in verse 8. The the wrongs that are causing them to take each other to court and the wrong it is to go to trial. Same word. Do you not know that the wicked, those who do wrong, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. It's an extraordinary thing for Paul to say. And this is where he starts to tell us why we should behave differently and how we can find the power to. Because you might win in this life, cheating. You might win in this life, defrauding people in church. You might win in this life if you think, well, I know no one at church is going to take me to trial because they take the Bible seriously, so I can get away with it. Paul says, no, no, you won't get away with anything. Because whatever you get away with in this life, don't you realize that wicked behavior means you won't inherit the kingdom of God in the next life? Now, it's very clear in the Bible that we are not saved by the stuff we do. Um, Right back at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, we're told that the, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In other words, Christianity is not how you save yourself, it's how you are saved by God. Don't misread these verses. We're saved by Jesus. But Paul is making a blunt simple point he says look if you live your life following the standards of Corinth what on earth makes you think that you are going to inherit the riches that God is storing up for those who follow Jesus you don't follow Jesus you can talk about believing him but following means living like and you don't follow Jesus you follow Corinth you have no interest in him 
Now, the list that follows, the, the list that we just read, is a very Corinthian list in the sense that um, you get three lists of sins in uh, 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5 and 6, they, they all appear. And they focus on three areas, sexual immorality, idolatry, and uh, greed, financial greed. That's the big three in Corinth. This isn't a list of uh, all the sins in the Bible. This is just a list of the, the particular sins that the Corinthian Christians struggled with. But even though it's not a full list of everything the Bible views as sinful, I want, can any of us hear this and not feel uncomfortable as the light of God shines clearly on some of the darker areas of our heart? Do you not know the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. It's a frightening, sobering list. Especially because this isn't a list of the worst of sinners. This is just a description of a normal church. This is a description of people like you and me. Actually, it's full of good news. This is a list people try to avoid when they read the Bible, but it's one of the most wonderful verses. Let me show you why. Firstly, because it's nouns, not verbs. It's nouns, not verbs. I am a grammar Nazi. I'll admit to that. I'm quite happy being a grammar Nazi. But it's not just an excitement about grammar. The point is, he's not saying verbs. Anybody who does these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who sometimes commit acts of sexual immorality, those who sometimes slander, those who occasionally steal will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about verbs of things we sometimes do. He's talking about nouns, as in things that define you. Defining characteristics. So people say, he is a, what are you? What defines you as a person? What is so consuming? What do you do so often that it just, it's your identity? That's what he's talking about. So this is not talking about those of us who we struggle with some of these things and we, we feel the temptation and we fall sometimes, but we're fighting. He's not talking about that. He's talking about those of us who are defined by these issues and not fighting them. But the really, really good news comes in verse 11. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Whatever words, whatever of those words maybe, or other sins, defined you or me before we put our trust in Christ, the moment you put your trust in Christ, they no longer define you. And there are three other words that define you if you put your trust in Christ. Three words which are true, whether there was only one of these, or whether actually all of these were you. You could, be, you could have lived a life completely characterized by every one of these ten sins. You put your trust in Christ and actually none of it's now true. What is true is that you are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified. What does that mean? You're washed. It's, it's getting a bit nippy. It's getting to that stage where, where the battle is on. Uh, you know, the battle, you cannot put on the heating in the house until November. It's a rule. All the men here know it. Uh, but it's getting quite cold. I have a secret weapon. I have a very large dog. 
And so on those slightly chilly evenings, as I'm sat on the sofa watching the TV, the dog will just deposit himself and, and it keeps me warm, which I love because it makes me able to keep another week of not turning on the heating. I'm that tight. Um, and it's just quite nice. There is only one time when I don't like the dog sitting on me. If you don't own a dog, you won't know this, but dogs love rolling in things that smell. And there's nothing they love rolling in more than fox poo. Fox poo is like weaponized poo. I kid you not. It is so horrific smelling that you have to have a special shampoo to wash it off. When he uh, manages to find someone and someone rolls in it and comes back covered in this stuff, the stench is so bad it makes you vomit. You don't want him anywhere near you. I love my dog. I don't want him anywhere near me when he's covered in that filth. I have to wash him. I have to shower him with this special stuff and blow dry him because, well, that's what you do. (laughs) It's easier than using a towel, but a bit of the man in me dies every time I blow dry my dog. But once he's clean, he's back back on my lap. Let me tell you, the, the absolute horror, the, 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 the gagging, retching disgust that you, you and I feel to a dog covered in fox poo is nothing compared with what our God feels to the sins that we happily roll in. They make him sick. They disgust him. They make him unable to be anywhere near us. That's why the whole Testament is full of barriers of flaming swords and curtains and walls to keep us away from God because our sins disgust him. But in Christ, we're washed. We're washed so that we are perfectly clean. The stench of our sin is gone. The filth is wiped away. And you and I are welcome to come and sit with our Father now. No matter how foul and filthy we were, no matter what we've done, we have been washed in Christ. We've also been sanctified. Sanctified speaks of a slightly different thing. It's saying, look, we're we're utterly unworthy and yet we've been been given an enormous honour. It's like someone like me being asked to be captain of the all-black rugby team. I'm not a Kiwi and I'm no good at rugby, but hey, here's a wonderful honour. I don't deserve it. Here, Become the queen's attendant. Become the heir to the throne, God says. He takes us, utterly unworthy us, and bestows on us an honour we do not deserve to be inheritors of his eternal kingdom. Far better than uh, being made first in line to the throne of Her Majesty, the Queen of England, is being able to be a joint heir in the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ. We've been sanctified. God says, I don't care what you think of the way you speak. I don't care what you think of the stuff you do. I think you're worthy to serve me. I want your lips and your hands. And I want you to serve me. You know how it, uh, years ago, it's not so much the same these days. Parents used to have the special set of um, cutlery and crockery only for Christmas. Nice bone china type stuff. Only brought out for special occasions. Not for normal wear. Well, God says... You are my special crockery now. It's not you're no good and I need special people. You are my special ones. You're sanctified. You're set apart for my service. What a privilege. And thirdly, we've been justified. 
justified this. Oh, there's loads of ways you can explain this, but given given this week's events, uh, I remember. Who, I'm not going to ask for hands up, but it just it, no one else will, and then I'll look really old. Um, I remember when um, Back to the Future came out. I remember how far in the future, 21st of October 2015, woo, sounded. You have no idea. But this week it happened. Now, what does justified mean? Justified means if I pulled up the DeLorean car here now, and you got in and you set the dial to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ judgment day, and you would hear God say, Al, Sarah, Sharon, Paul, you are perfect. You are accepted. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy the bounty of my kingdom. See, justified means that the verdict on your life has already been declared. Jesus has won that verdict. He's passed the exam. He's paid for the sin. And therefore, justified means you already know what will be said of you on judgment day. Almighty God will say, you are mine and you are pure. And no one in the universe can accuse you of anything, not before me. If you trust in Christ, whatever you feel like, no matter how guilty, filthy and shameful you feel, if you trust in Christ, you are washed, you are sanctified and you are justified. Your future is inheriting the kingdom of God with Jesus Christ. And because of that, well, don't indulge in sexual immorality, chapter 5. Don't tolerate it in church. And because of that future, don't, don't fall out with one another over some financial matter as if that really, really is such a big deal. Given all you're going to inherit in the future, don't worry about that nonsense. A church without disagreements is probably not a church. It's just a group of people who get together every now and then and smile and sing in the same direction. A church that really is a church where we actually get to know each other and get involved in one another's lives will have disagreements because we're not perfect, we're sinful. But a church where people don't resolve those disputes is not Christian. Because Jesus died to pay for the wrongs that we've done. Jesus declared each other person here right and pure and sanctified. So what right have I got to hold a grudge against them? Jesus doesn't and neither should we. We need to work hard at forgiving, reconciling, sacrificing my need to be shown to be right And instead, delighting to bring honor to the Lord Jesus Christ by forgiving and loving and helping make this a family. If you trust in Christ, you have been dramatically and definitively changed. You have been washed. You've been sanctified and you've been justified. In other words, you are different. And because you are different, you can live different. So be different. Even when it comes to sex, chapter 5. Even when it comes to money, chapter 6. Because after all, what God has planned for us in the new creation is far, far better than either of those. We're going to confess our sins together. We do this every Sunday as a church. I'd like us to think in particular, perhaps about... um, 
uh, just the, the sins of us as a community tonight. Not just the, the, the individual sins of you and me, although if there are things that um, are particularly painful on your heart after reading through the list from 1 Corinthians 6, then, then I guess it's inevitable you'll have those on your mind. But it would be good to just think, as a community, have we each played our part in trying to make this a place of forgiveness, a place of love, acceptance, openness, a place where people can make mistakes and be forgiven? Let's pray together. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us. And restore us to the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And the Holy Spirit says to each and every one of us, You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. And therefore no one needs remain in sin. No one needs to remain in the lie of inward shame. At the cross we find forgiveness. And at the cross we find restoration.